We're reading the New Testament. On Sundays and Wednesdays, we're talking about passages that are in the window that we're reading that particular week. Uh, On Wednesdays, I'm teaching in here. Corey's teaching in here. Uh, Jake Graves is teaching upstairs. They're following the same sort of preaching schedule that we're doing, except Jake is picking the passage that he's going to talk to the youth about. Jason is right back behind us here teaching the college. He's picking the passages each Wednesday night that the college is going to look at. When we came to this week, I texted Jake and Jason last week as I was preparing for this week, and I said, hey, I think you ought to do 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. That's what I'm going to do with the older folks. And I think the time in which we live is so confused about sexuality that I think there's some important principles in this passage that we just should take advantage of the opportunity to look at these these verses. So if you've got young people who are upstairs or in the college group, they're talking about generally the same thing that we're talking about tonight. My presentation is going to be geared towards adults, Jake's towards youth, Jason's towards college. So we'll do it in a, an appropriate manner, but we're all looking at the same thing tonight. Tonight is our second stop in 1 Thessalonians. And so I want to say a few things on the front end just so that we understand the context of this city and Paul's relationship with this city and all that, all that good stuff. So, Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He only stayed in Thessalonica for a few weeks. We know he preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. So maybe he was there three, four weeks, depending on when he showed up and how the Sabbaths fell and all that good stuff. We know that even though he was there just a little while... Luke tells us in Acts 17, many people believed while he was there in Thessalonica. And I told you Sunday that Luke, as he's describing Paul's travels, he doesn't always say many people believed in this city. In fact, in places like Athens, one of the places Paul went to when he left uh, Philippi, when he was in Athens, People laughed him out of town, and Luke actually says very few people believed. But in Thessalonica, he preached in this synagogue. Many Greeks, many Jews believed when Paul preached the gospel here. Paul had to leave town. We talked about the reasons for that Sunday. You can revisit all of that in Acts chapter 17. The church asked Paul to leave. He was the lightning rod. Everything was very tense. Paul left, he went to Berea, he went to Athens, he went to Corinth, he went all of these different places, and at some point he became concerned for the church in Thessalonica. He was traveling with Silas and Timothy on the second missionary journey, and he said, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica, I can't go back, I'm the lightning rod, it's too problematic, it's too dangerous, Timothy, go back and check on them, I'm worried about them. They faced persecution from the very beginning. So Timothy went back, and he checked on the church, and he came back to Paul, and he said, Paul, they're doing great. All things considered, they're doing really, really well. And Paul responded with this letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica, we know this from Paul's letter, was known for their faith in Jesus and their love for each other. Paul makes a point to mention that at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, and in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3, he commends them for their faith in God, their faith in Jesus Christ, and the love that they had for each other. I also want you to know this. The church in Thessalonica experienced suffering and affliction from 
day one. From the very founding of this church, Christians were being arrested and forced unlawfully, unjustly to pay bail money to keep themselves and to keep their friends out of jail. That hardship and that affliction continued. And all the way through 1 Thessalonians and all the way through 2 Thessalonians, Paul makes reference to their afflictions and their sufferings and their hardships. That was just part of following Jesus in Thessalonica. Okay, That's the background. Here's the big idea for our passage. Very simple. God desires, or you could say God wills, God desires the sanctification of His people That's the broad category of what God desires, sanctification. The narrow specific that's in focus in our passage is that God desires the sanctification of His people, particularly, especially in the area of sexuality. God desires the sanctification of His people, especially in the area of sexuality. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. We'll read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 to verse 8. The Bible says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand. And solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity. But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this. Disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, tonight we simply ask that you would take your word, press it home to our hearts. Lord, we know that like Paul, we live in a culture that is highly confused about sexuality. And so we pray for clear minds and we pray for humble hearts and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's good every now and then for a a preacher to read books about preaching to learn about preaching and think about preaching. And through the years, as I've read various books about preaching, I think my all-time favorite book about preaching is a book by a man named John Stott, and the book is titled Between Two Worlds. Between Two Worlds. The main idea of the book is really pretty straightforward. Stott says the preacher lives between two worlds. On the one hand, the preacher has to deal with the world of the Bible. It's an ancient world. It's a world rooted in Hebrew culture. It's a a world rooted in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, It's a, a world that is removed from us by time and geography and culture and language and custom. 
but the preacher has to live partly in that world. The other world that the preacher has to live in is this world, the present world. For us, that would be the United States of America, uh, that would be the state of Texas, that would be the city of Odessa. That's the world in which we live. And the job of the preacher, according to Stott in this book, is to build a bridge of understanding between those two worlds, to find a way to connect those two worlds so that the people that he speaks to in this world understand what God was saying in the past to people in a different world and that the timeless truths of the gospel, the timeless truths of Scripture might be applied to our lives. I think about that regularly as I prepare to preach. This was this world. We live in this world. Somehow we've got to build a bridge to connect these two worlds and make sense of what the Scripture has to say to our lives today. I especially thought about that concept as I read this passage over the weekend and at the beginning of this week, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. The bridge that has to be built on this passage centers on verse 3 where Paul says, this is the will of God. People all over the world want to know what God's will for their life is. Young people pray about this. Middle-aged people pray about this. Old people pray about this. What is God's will for me? Well, Paul lays it out for you right here. You don't even have to ask. You don't have to wonder. You don't even have to pray because Paul's telling you the will of God for you is your sanctification. It's your sanctification. And then he explains what he means. That you abstain from sexual immorality. So just a little bit of bridge building we need to do on the front end. Let's talk about this, this word sanctification. Sanctification. What does the word sanctification mean? The Greek word is hagiosmos. What does this word describe? Two things. Sanctification in the Bible describes first a positional change and second a progressive change. Both of those ideas are tied up in this word sanctification, hagiosmos, to make holy. The positional change is the idea that God takes a believer and sets him or her apart. They're now distinct. It's a change in position. You used to be God's enemy, but now you're his child. You used to be part of the kingdom of darkness, but now you're part of the kingdom of of his son. It's a positional change. And it's something that God does. It's irrevocable. A believer has been set apart. They've been sanctified. This word also has the idea of a progressive change. And that's the idea that God is at work in us through the person of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more holy over time, to help us grow in Christ-likeness over time. That's usually the idea we have in mind when we talk about sanctification, growing in holiness. And that's a biblical concept. You just have to couple it with the idea of your position has been changed. You have been set apart in God's eye. It's positional sanctification. And now that you've been set apart, God is working this progressive sanctification in your life 
so that you grow to be more and more like His Son. So that's sanctification. Now let's talk, this is not in your notes, but I'll put the term up on the screen. Let's talk about the explanation Paul gives in verse 3 when he talks about sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. And it's just the general Greek term for sexual immorality in general. It's like a bucket term. You can put all sorts of ideas into this bucket. All sorts of things could fall into the category of sexual immorality. And that one word can carry and describe a number of different things as you carry around those concepts in that bucket. Maybe that's a helpful image for you. So one of the things we need to do is we try to make sense of what Paul's saying. He says, God's will for you is sanctification. And specifically what he has in mind is in this area of sexual morality or sexual immorality. He says he wants us to abstain from the big, large category that includes all sorts of stuff of sexual immorality. So what we need to do is not assume that Paul understood our culture. We need to say, what did Paul have in mind? What sort of stuff did he have in mind when he uses this term sexual immorality? And how might that translate to our world today? Maybe we can build a bridge to connect these two worlds. So, I'm going to give you some information. Let me show you uh, two faces. Uh, the face on the left is a guy named Kyle Harper. To my knowledge, he's not a believer. He is a former provost at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. He's a prolific author. He looks really young in all of his photos. And I picked the photo where he looks the oldest because some of the photos, I thought, they're going to think this guy's a teenager. He looks really, really young. He's written all kinds of scholarly works. One in particular is called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Sounds thrilling, right? Right? From Shame to sin, the Christian transformation of sexual morality in late antiquity. In this book, basically what he's describing is how Christianity changed the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. That's the gist of the book. Okay? Not a Christian. He's not saying it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. He's just saying it's a historical thing. It happened. Now, the guy on the right is a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Super smart writes a lot of books, speaks at a lot of conferences. Anything he's written is worth your attention and worth reading. And there's an article online where Kevin DeYoung interacts with Kyle Harper. Okay? Kevin DeYoung, Christian, solid, faithful believer, interacting with the work of this secular historian, talking about how Christianity changed the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. And here's one of the things that Kevin DeYoung says as he talks about Harper's work. He says, sexual morality in the Roman Empire was permissive, it was based on social status, and sexual desire could be fulfilled in a myriad of ways. Sexual morality under the triumph of Christianity was austere, based on gender, and sexual desire could be fulfilled in only one way. So if you dig into Harper's work and you study sexual ethics in the Roman Empire. Let me just run down a list of things that you would have found if you could go back to ancient Rome. One of the things you would find is that for Roman men, I'm going to talk to you like adults at this point, 
For Roman men, it was perfectly acceptable to engage in sexual conduct with slaves, male or female. It was perfectly acceptable for Roman men to engage in sexual relationships with prostitutes, male or female. It was not uncommon and usually not looked down upon for Roman men to engage in sexual relationships with young boys. Expectations on women, very high. Women didn't get to do any of that stuff. Women expected to be virgins before they were married. Women expected to be faithful within marriage. But for Roman men, there was not a lot of boundary. Really, and again, I'm going to talk directly to you, there were two taboos for Roman men. Number one, don't be the passive partner in a homosexual encounter. And number two, don't have sex with someone else's wife. That's it. Anything else is just understood that that's what men have to do. There is nothing you can do to stop it. In fact, if a Roman man were to have a sexual encounter with a slave or a prostitute before he got married, he would still be considered a virgin. And if he had one of these sexual encounters after he got married, it would not be considered adultery. Helps you understand what Paul means when he talks about the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Divorce in the Roman Empire, relatively easy. Men or women could sue for divorce, and there were a number of reasons that they could sue for divorce. One of the things I didn't put on here is just the admission that in the Roman Empire there was no legal recognition of same-sex marriage. However, Harper talks about the fact that there were people in the Roman Empire who talked about and longed for the recognition, potentially, possibly, someday, of same-sex marriage. They thought that that would be a good thing. Exposure of unwanted babies. Abortion techniques were not as, I hate to use this word, but let's just use the word sophisticated, then as they are now. And so typically what would happen if there was an unwanted pregnancy, an unwanted baby, is that baby would just be exposed, meaning left outside. That was acceptable. Christians were the people who would go along and pick those babies up and adopt them and take them in as their own. But it was perfectly acceptable to leave those babies out. Sounds like a mess, right? You ready to build a bridge to today? All right, let's build a bridge to today. Let's start with pornography. I'm not even going to give you the statistics on internet pornography. There's no point. They are completely overwhelming and mind-numbing. They're numbers that when you look at them, they literally have no meaning. They're so overwhelming. And they have disastrous consequences for young men and for young women. Hookup culture. The idea that you can just have casual sex with anybody whenever you want to increasingly more and more and more that is seen as normal it's unquestioned and it's actually celebrated as a good thing it's encouraged the idea that two people might live together before they get married is so common that when you suggest to some people that maybe that's not the best approach to a relationship, they just look at you with this glazed look like, what are you talking about? Where did, what planet did you come from? 
It's just common and accepted. Abortion. When people are honest, I saw a tweet from a leading abortion group just before I came into church. When people are honest, this is the argument that they make. Abortion on demand is necessary so that females can have the same sexual freedom as males without the consequence of, consequence of pregnancy. So they're not arguing for the right to expose their infants on the sidewalk, but they're essentially arguing for the exact same thing. We want to have the same sexual permissive freedoms with no boundaries and with no consequences. We have that right. That's the argument for abortion. What about divorce? Super common in the United States. I know that you've heard statistics that say that the divorce rate inside the church is the same outside the church. It's not. It is not the same. Those statistics are not accurate. People who say that are not true. It's not right. Couples who faithfully attend a Bible-believing church together consistently have a dramatically lower divorce rate than the outside population. And that holds true even when the outside population is cohabiting and not married so that they're not even getting divorced. It definitely makes a difference. However, the United States as a whole, I saw statistics just this last week, heard a podcast about this. The United States leads the world, the world, in children who grow up in a home without both of their parents. Leads the world. Homosexuality, it's legal, it's celebrated, it's promoted, it's part of capitalism now. There's a whole month on our calendar where every company in the United States changes their logo to celebrate this. Adults in our culture, I can't wrap my head around this, adults in our culture are allowed to take young children to events where men dress up in women's clothing, and no one gets arrested. I see videos of this. I see pictures of it on the Internet. It's shocking, and it happens, and people applaud it. The trans movement encourages young people, old people, any people, to change their biological sex to match their perceived Gender identity is a complete fiction. No one can change their biological sex. It is not possible. You can have all sorts of surgeries. You cannot change the molecular structure, your DNA, your cellular makeup of who you are. It's not possible. But it's promoted as normal and as good and as essential. If there's an unforgivable sin in the 2020s, I don't think I put these up here. If there's an unforgivable sin in the 2020s, it's misgendering and dead naming. Misgendering, refusing to call someone by the pronouns they want you to call them by. Dead naming, using someone's old name before they transitioned instead of their new name after they transitioned. There's people in developed northern European countries, in Canada, 
who have faced legal consequence for misgendering and dead naming. Sound like a mess to you? Sounds like a mess in ancient Rome. In Paul's day, it was a mess. Sounds like a mess today in the United States of America. Maybe the author of Ecclesiastes who lived before the United States and before ancient Rome knew what he was saying when he said, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Human hearts are sinful and they're wicked and they will take God's good design for marriage and sexuality and twist it and pervert it in a thousand different ways. There is nothing new under the sun. And into that sort of world, the Apostle Paul has the audacity. You want to get canceled today? Sign up with Paul right here. God's will for you is your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And in these eight verses, Paul gives us some principles to think through what that looks like. This is the beauty of this passage. This passage contains principles that are true in ancient Rome and they're true today in the modern United States of America. If these principles are followed, you don't have to worry about all the crazy things that were happening in ancient Rome and all the crazy things that are happening today. These are the principles I want you to see tonight. How should Christians think about sanctification, especially as it relates to sexuality? Number one, Christians ought to aim to please God in the way they walk. Our aim as Christians in our lives should be to please God in the way that we walk. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says, we gave you instructions. We didn't just say, follow your heart, make it up as you go. But we gave you instructions. And what you need to do, Paul says to the Thessalonians, is you need to keep on doing what you've been doing. You need to walk in a way that your life will be pleasing to the Lord. That word walk, we've talked about it a lot lately on Sundays and Wednesdays. Your walk is your life. It's the manner of your life. It's the direction of your life. It's the trajectory of your life. It's the pattern of your life. It's the progress of your life. And Paul says in all of those things, in your life, your aim ought to be to please God. Not to fit in with the world. That's not your aim. Not to live out whatever you find in your heart, but to walk to please God. How is it that any human being, sinful human being, might find themselves wanting to walk in a way that would be pleasing to God? The answer to that question is found in the Old Testament in a book called Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel says, God speaking through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
This is God in the Old Covenant talking about what He would do in the New Covenant. And in this passage, if you read before it and after it, He says, you have a heart of stone and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Your heart is dead and I'm going to give you a new heart. And when I give you a new heart, your new heart is going to have the desire to walk in my statutes and your new heart is going to be careful to obey my rules. Christianity in the United States of America has no use for this concept, especially when it comes to how a person is saved. In the United States of America, we have de-spiritualized salvation. We have taken salvation, which is a miracle, and we have turned it into something completely ordinary. This is what I mean. You hear people say little cliches. I'll just give you one example, something that you'll hear people say when it comes to salvation. Quote, Jesus cast his vote for you on the cross. Will you cast your vote for him and believe? That sounds nice to Americans. We like the right to vote. We like the idea that somebody might vote for us. Only Jesus wasn't voting for you on the cross. Jesus was dying for you on the cross, suffering under the wrath of God that you might live. That's what he was doing on the cross. And what you and I need is not just to cast a vote one direction or another. You know what you and I need? Jesus to Nicodemus. What you need is to be born again. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 1. What does this new birth look like? Well, it's not according to the will of the flesh. It's not according to blood, to human descent. This new birth comes from God. It's a miracle. Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And the only one who can make you alive is God. Ezekiel 36. You have a heart of stone and you desperately need Almighty God to take it out and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's a miracle. It's not just a vote. It's not just a decision. It is a miracle from God when a sinner receives a new heart. And Ezekiel says when that miracle happens and you have a new heart, then God works in you and He begins moving you that you want to walk in His statutes and obey His rules. So the first principle is, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, you want to walk to please God. Paul talks about that in verse 1 and 2. Principle number two, Christians are called to control their body rather than living out every desire. That's countercultural. It was countercultural when Paul said it, especially to grown Roman men. You need to have self-control. And it's countercultural today when you say it on a college campus, when you say it in the workplace. You must have self-control. Verse 4, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. The logic of that verse, as I read that verse and thought about that verse, my mind kept going back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You remember when Jesus was talking about worry and anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount? And he's talking about the lilies and he's talking about the birds. And Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Gentiles don't know the Father. Let them do the worrying. That's for the Gentiles. That's not for you. That's not for people who know the truth about God. That's the same logic as what Paul's saying here. Look, the Gentiles, they don't have self-control. They just follow their lusts and their passions and their desires. That's for people who don't know God, but you know God. You've been born again. God's given you a new heart. You have a desire to walk in a way that pleases Him. So don't walk without self-control, but control your body rather than living out every desire. Principle number three. Christians need to remember that our sin always impacts other people. I think this is what Paul's driving at in verse 6. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about controlling your body, not in the passion of lust. Verse 6, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You know, as you listen to me describe the sexual ethic of ancient Rome, your mind probably at some point went to the fact that there was not a lot of thought given toward the slave or the prostitute or the young person or the female. Those people were not considered. And when Paul's writing to this church and he says, let no one wrong your brother. Let no one wrong another person. Don't wrong somebody who's created in the image of God. Your sin has an impact on other people. It's not just about you. That's something that we ought to learn today. Something that we need to learn today. In a real sense, sexual ethics in the United States today has been boiled down to one word, consent. If there's consent, who are you to stand in somebody's way? Even that's a little bit shaky. But that's sort of the big umbrella, the full stop, consent. I think Paul would say, you need to remember that your sin has a consequence on people other than you. You don't think that's true for people who are forced into the production of pornography? that our cultural consumption of that might not have an impact on their lives? You don't think that has an impact on marriages, husbands and wives, where a relationship gets torn apart by pornography? You don't think that overwhelming number of kids in the United States, the world's leading percentage who are growing up without both their parents, you don't think there's a consequence for them? You don't think there's a consequence for the young people who are being told, actively being told, if you feel at all awkward in your body, you're probably in the wrong body. You ought to go on hormones. You ought to have surgery. You don't think there's a consequence for those people? Our sin always has consequences. 
for us and for others. And we talked about this when we worked through the kings not that long ago. You can pick your sin, but you don't get to pick the consequences of your sin. Christians must remember that our sin always impacts other people. Fourth, one more principle. Christians have been called by the, I know this is obvious, but I want you to actually write it, Holy Spirit. It's called the Holy Spirit. What does He do? Well, He helps us to live lives of holiness. It's obvious, but it's something that we often forget. Verse 7 and verse 8, God has not called us for impurity. He's called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Let me just circle back and talk about how in the United States we've taken the miraculous out of salvation. We've boiled it down to cast a vote this way, cast a vote that way. We've boiled it down to if you pray this prayer, God's going to add your name to St. Peter's list and you can check in at the pearly gates when you get there. That We've just reduced it down to something like that. When it's a much more miraculous, it's a much more amazing thing than what we've turned it into. Salvation looks like this in the Bible. Somebody who is dead being brought to life. Somebody with a heart of stone now having a heart of flesh. Somebody who's born into the kingdom of darkness being transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Somebody who is under the wrath of God being adopted into God's family. It's a miracle. As Protestants, we believe salvation is by God's grace alone. It is through faith alone in Jesus alone. And when by God's grace a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in the Lord Jesus, it's because they've received a new heart. And God is moving them to walk in His statutes and obey His commandments. And you think that's miraculous. Let's add something else even more amazing. When that happens to a sinner, and they're now a believer, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity comes to live in you. That's one of those Christian ideas that when you say that to a lost person sounds kind of weird. So maybe that's why we don't talk about it much. It sounds kind of weird. Guess what? It is, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's a miracle. It's something supernatural. It's something that natural people, people with a heart of stone, are going to look at and say, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, of course it doesn't make any sense to you. You have a heart of stone. This is what the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit makes His residence in the people of God. They're His temple. This is the basis of sanctification. Sanctification is not you trying really hard to clean yourself up so God doesn't get fed up with you. Sanctification is God has given you a new heart. He's planted this desire for you to walk in His statutes and to obey His rules. 
and His Holy Spirit is living in you, and His Holy Spirit has called you, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, in holiness. Not for impurity, but in holiness. Can you imagine life in the United States of America if on the wholesale we adopted these four principles when it comes to sexuality? Can you imagine what would change and what it would be like? My guess is, listen, my guess is you say, I can't imagine it. Guess what? In Thessalonica, 2,000 years ago, they couldn't imagine it. They couldn't fathom it. They looked around and saw chaos. They couldn't imagine it. And guess what? I'm not telling you it ever got perfect, but I am telling you, and even secular historians like Kyle Harper will tell you, it did change. It did change. Walking to please God. Controlling our bodies rather than following our desires. Remembering that our sin has an impact on other people. And seeking to be holy through the the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. Not listening to Oprah and Disney and YouTube and TikTok and all that mess out there. Not trying to just blend in and fit in with the culture. Not just trying to affirm people in any desire or thought or inclination or feeling that they have. Walking to please God, controlling our bodies, remembering that sin impacts other people, and living lives of holiness. I'm telling you, they couldn't, they couldn't imagine it in Thessalonica. You may not be able to imagine it today. But it's not up to you and I to bring any of that about. And you know what? It's not even up to you and I to make sure that it comes about in the end or to make our following Jesus conditional on whether or not these things change. Because for these people in Thessalonica, they're following Jesus in the midst of affliction. That's where we started at the beginning. It was hard to be a Christian in Thessalonica. It cost you something to follow Jesus in Thessalonica. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Be imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. There was a lot of affliction when you received the word. But the Holy Spirit gave you joy in the midst of that affliction. I think we probably ought to count on that today. If you're going to receive the word of God today, it might come with affliction. And next year it might come with more affliction. And the next year it might come with more affliction. But guess what? When you receive the Word of God, it's because the Holy Spirit's at work in you, and you also have joy in the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of affliction. Look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, do not be moved by these afflictions. You yourselves know that we were destined for this. Don't let the affliction shake you. If you receive the Word of God and stand for the Word of God in the midst of a culture that's completely confused, about sexual ethics. There may be affliction for you. Don't be moved by it. Don't be shaken by it. Don't falter because of it. It might be costly, but we probably just ought to count the cost. Jesus told his disciples to do that. Count the cost if you're going to be a disciple. 
this is God's will for you. That's what he says. This is God's will. It's your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. I think as we end, we ought to just pray and ask for God's help. None of this is easy. It's not easy for us as adults. It's not easy for the college kids who are right behind the wall. It's not easy for the youth who are upstairs. It's not going to be easy for the kids who are down on the other end of the building at Awana. It's not going to be easy for our church. It's not going to be easy for our families. So as we end, join me as we pray and ask that God would help us. Father, we're grateful to be your people. What a miracle you have worked in our lives. This this miracle of regeneration. It's this miracle of giving us a new heart. It's this miracle of filling us with the Holy Spirit. Calling us to walk in holiness. Calling us to sanctification. Calling us to abstain from sexual immorality. God, we pray for ourselves first. and We pray that you would help us. We pray for our families and for our church. We pray that you would strengthen us. Father, we pray for our college students and we pray for our youth who are thinking about these things tonight. And God, they have a thousand voices in their head telling them the opposite of what your word says in 1 Thessalonians 4. They have a thousand voices on social media and in movies, and on television, and at school, telling them the opposite of what your word says. And we simply pray that your spirit would take your word and drive it deep down into their hearts. God, give them new hearts. Move them to walk in your ways, in your statutes. To obey your your rules and your commands. God, we even pray for our children who are in the building tonight. And we can't even imagine what sort of things they might face if the Lord Jesus does not return. We can't even imagine. So we simply ask that you would help us to be faithful in teaching them, discipling them, presenting the truth to them. And Lord, even if we face affliction, may we face it with joy because of the presence of your Spirit in our lives. Lord, we love you, we need you, and so we ask for your help, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.